John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 is the framework for the entire Gospel of John. And throughout his Gospel, he builds on this framework and substantiates his claims. And he shows you that Jesus is worth trusting. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode 44. Today, I want to talk about the true identity of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do this by taking a look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. But before I do that, let me lay some groundwork by looking at the overall story of the Bible and then focusing on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So first, I want you to know that the Bible is really a book of redemption. There's a lot of people who think the Bible is a book of good moral stories, but it's not. The Bible's filled with deception, murder, sexual immorality, greed, and all kinds of other sins. These aren't moral stories. These are stories of wickedness and evil. But the overall message of the Bible is redemption. And this story of redemption is fascinating. You see, the enemy of God takes God's people captive. And then God implements his plan to rescue his people and defeat his enemy. So the Son of Man comes like a meteor, sending a shockwave throughout the whole world, whereby God rescues his people and defeats his enemy. That's Genesis to Revelation. That's the whole Bible. And if we take a look at each book of the Bible, we see that it's a slow-motion replay of the redemptive story. And if we zoom in to 2021, we are still in the shockwave. That time between the four Gospels and the book of Revelation. That time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And the four Gospels take place during the beginning of the shockwave, where the church began to advance throughout the world. And John is looking back years before when the Son of God came to earth and impacted his creation through his death and resurrection. Now we can find John's purpose in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And there he tells us that he didn't include all of the stories in his gospel. But the stories he did include, he did so so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing, we would have life in his name. So John begins his gospel by giving us an introduction to who Jesus is. And this is the framework for his entire gospel. Now, when you look at the four Gospels, they basically tell the same story. They tell us of the man Jesus and his ministry on earth. They tell us of his crucifixion and his resurrection. But each of the four Gospels begin in a different place. So, for example, Matthew begins with Abraham. We see Abraham show up in Genesis chapter 12 and following, and the promise comes to him, the promise of Christ. You see, through Abraham, the Christ would come. Mark, on the other hand, begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, just keep in mind, John the Baptist is not the Apostle John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John. But Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. And then we have Luke, and he begins prior to Jesus' birth. He does connect Jesus with Adam in chapter 3, but he begins his gospel just before the conception of Jesus. But the Gospel of John is different than the other three. You see, where the other three began on earth, John begins his gospel in eternity. 
The point that he's getting at is that Jesus doesn't begin his life on earth. He comes from eternity. And we see in John chapter 1, verse 1, John begins with, in the beginning. Now that phrase should actually ring a bell. And I think John is very intentional here. He's connecting us with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. There it says that in the beginning God created. So John is putting us back in that time before creation. And he says that in that time, in the beginning, was the Word. Now this should raise a question, who is the Word? Well, we know the Word is Jesus. And there's a couple reasons for this. First, the Gospel of John is about Jesus. If you remember, the purpose of John is so that we would believe that he is the Christ and we would have life in his name. But second, we see in verse 14 that the Word became flesh. So this is obviously speaking of Jesus' humanity. So Jesus is the Word who came from eternity. Now we also see in John chapter 1, verse 1, that the Word is a distinct person. It says that the Word was God and the Word was with God. So the Word is God and is a distinct person of God. Now, this is one of the places that we would go to make a case for the Trinity. A quick definition of the Trinity is one God that exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Now, this may be confusing to you, and you may not be able to wrap your mind around this concept of the Trinity, that there is one God who exists in three persons. Well, don't worry about it. None of us really understand it, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. And this is one of the places that we see that the Word was God and the Word was with God. So he is God and he's a distinct person in the Godhead. Now, I want to point out something in the phrase, the Word was God. So that's a past tense and it seems to imply that he's no longer God. But that's not the point that John is getting at. The past tense simply means that back then, Jesus existed before God created everything. And so this shouldn't be a concern for us because he still is God. In fact, after his resurrection, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. We see that in John chapter 20, verse 28. So Jesus didn't give up his divinity. He did not stop being God when he became a human. As a human, he is still God. Now, there's a couple other things I want us to see here. One, Jesus was involved in creation. And John seems to indicate that Jesus is the word that created by the voice of God. So if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, we would see that God said, let there be light, and there was light. So it seems that Jesus is the agent, if you will, that created. In John chapter 1 verse 3, it says that all things were made through him. And nothing was made without him. So we see from verse 1 in John 1 that Jesus was in the beginning. And we see in verse 3 that he was involved in creation. So there he is in the beginning. Now I also want you to see that Jesus is the source of life. And John points this out in more depth in John 6 where Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And also in John 14, Jesus calls himself the life. So he is the source of life. Now, this isn't necessarily difficult to grasp because we see back in Genesis chapter 2 that God breathed life into Adam and he became a living being. We see that in verse 7. 
So if Jesus is God, certainly he is a life giver. So he is the source of life. And then we also see that Jesus is the light. And John elaborates on this point in John 8, where Jesus calls himself the light of the world. So the spiritually dead, those who are in darkness, those who are not believers in Christ, they do not understand him. Why? Well, John tells us in verses 19 and 20, they loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. In fact, they hated the light and they refused to come into the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. Now, in verse 6, John kind of throws us a curveball and then he starts talking about John the Baptist. And at first glance, that seems pretty strange. Here he is talking about the Word and how the Word was with God, the Word was God, he's the light of the world, he's life. And then all of a sudden he's talking about John the Baptist. Why would he do that? Well, it seems some confused John the Baptist with the coming Messiah. And here it seems the Apostle John wants to make a distinction between John the Baptist and the Word. And John the Baptist is not the Word. So again, it seems John is trying to help his readers understand that as he's talking about the Word, He's not talking about John the Baptist. And then in verses 9 through 11, John reveals man's problem. Jesus evidenced himself as God, and the world didn't know him. Now, giving light to everyone in verse 9 does not mean that all people receive spiritual life. It means that the light from heaven was revealed to mankind, but not everyone received it. D.A. Carson says, Light shines on all, and this light forces a distinction. So, in other words, the light reveals two people, believers and non-believers. So, even the Jews, his own people didn't receive him. Jesus did signs to authenticate himself as the Messiah. And they should have known better because they had the Old Testament, which is primarily about Christ. But due to their spiritual condition, they were dead in sin, they didn't receive him. But it's even worse than that. Due to their sin, they actually suppressed the truth. And Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And then he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Man actively rejects Jesus. Those are active verbs, suppressing and exchanging. So sinful man suppresses the truth about God, and they exchange the truth of God for a lie. We see that in our own culture. If you could actually prove God, they wouldn't believe it. Well, elsewhere in the book of Romans, Paul says that man rejects God because they are unwilling and unable to submit to God's law. So now we see the real condition of mankind. They suppress the truth. They exchange the truth for a lie. They're unwilling to submit. But Paul points out an even greater problem. They're unable. You see, they rejected Christ because they actively rejected him, and they were unable on their own to receive him. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, they would not receive him. And for those of us who believe in Christ, we only do so because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me run off in another direction really quickly, and then I'll come back. Don't ever feel like it's your job to save somebody. When you share the good news of Christ with people, Don't put the pressure on yourself as if it's up to you that they come to faith. Well, sure, I think we should try to be persuasive. We should have good arguments to the best of our abilities. But at the end of the day, 
they're never going to believe unless the Holy Spirit works in their hearts. So I want you to be encouraged. When you have opportunities to share the gospel, just share the truth that you know and let God do the work. Because again, apart from his work, they're never coming to faith anyway. You can never persuade them into the kingdom. All right, let me come back to our study. We do know that there are some who believe. These aren't people who are academically astute. These aren't folks who were persuaded by logic. Remember, these people come from the same stock as we do. We all come from Adam, and left to themselves, they would not receive Christ. God, by his grace, made them alive and gave them the faith he requires. And you can listen to episode 5, where I discuss this process a little bit more as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, notice that God didn't give them life because they asked for it. They were born by the will of God, not by their own will. You see, again, when we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that's what we see. We were dead, but God made us alive. Now, while we're here, I do want to stress another point. There are a lot of churches that would teach that you have to receive Jesus in order to be saved. But what I want you to see in verse 12 is believing is receiving. You don't believe, then receive. When you believe, you have received. That's the point that we see in verse 12. John equates the two. He doesn't distinguish the two. So you don't have to receive him. When you believe him, you have received him. And again, when you believed in his name, it was by the work of God that enabled you to do so. You see, believers are the people whom God gave the faith that he requires. These are the ones whom God has given the right to become children of God. God loves his people and gives them what is necessary for salvation. God has done all the work of salvation, and our salvation is purely a gift, which means that everything that God requires in salvation, he did, he gave to us. And then moving on to verse 14, John clarifies the person of Christ. The word became flesh. Here we see that Jesus became a man. And John's point is that Jesus was actually visible. We have seen his glory. Jesus wasn't a mere vision or an angelic form. He is physically a man, God in the flesh. They could touch him, hear him, see him. In fact, John makes that very point in 1 John 1, verse 1. And then John says that Jesus is the one whom John the Baptist was speaking of, the one who came before him, the one who is greater than him. And then in verse 16, John says that we received grace upon grace. The law which condemns man was given by Moses, but salvation by grace comes through Christ. And because Jesus is God in the flesh, he has made God known to us. Since John is now writing after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, he makes it clear that Jesus is now at the right hand of God. So what can we gather about Jesus? Well, as I've already mentioned, he is God, and he is a person of the Trinity. And because he is God, he is powerful. He's the creator. In him is life. He is good. He is the light from which darkness flees. We also see that he became a man, and that means he came after you to make you his own. And in him we find grace. This is your Savior. No one is superior to him. So what does this mean for you? Well, first, your Savior left eternity to come and get you. 
Christ humiliated himself to become a man. Listen to Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And it answers by saying Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Jesus humiliated himself to come and get you. And this was necessary for redemption. Listen to Westminster Larger Catechism, question 39. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be a man? And it answers by saying it was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. You see, in order to save us, he had to do this. He had to become a man. He had to leave eternity and his glory to become a man and suffer. Your Savior has come from eternity to rescue you because he loves you and has brought you into fellowship with himself. You see, your God has given you life in Christ. You didn't come to faith in Christ on your own. You were born by the will of God. Since you've been born of the will of God, you have eternal life now, and nothing can change that. Your Savior is at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for you. And Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Well, this is the last thing that I want you to see. Your faith is not in vain. John wrote his gospel so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in him, you would have eternal life. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is the framework for the entire gospel of John. And throughout his gospel, he builds on this framework and substantiates his claims. And he shows you that Jesus is worth trusting. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.